0: Hey there, listener. Rachel Zucker here. I'm speaking to you on September 9th, 2022 from my home in Washington Heights. It's almost always the case that my favorite poem is the one I've just written or I'm currently writing, and my favorite Commonplace episode is the one I'm working on. But this one, episode 104, is incredibly important to me, not just because I'm deep into making it. This one Even if it doesn't seem like your particular cup of tea, I really hope you'll give this one a listen. This isn't a usual commonplace episode. It's not about a single artist or work of art or theme or place. It's about the critical response process, CRP, a method of critique and feedback created by dancer, choreographer, and educator Liz Lerman in the early 1990s. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Liz Lerman, which I recorded last spring at the Bethany Arts Community in Ossining, New York. Liz was in residence at Bethany with her dance troupe, finalizing her new dance theater piece, Wicked Bodies. I met Liz for the first time in person two nights before recording this audio, when poet and professor Jason Schneiderman... Commonplace episode ninety-five, and I drove up to Ossining together to hear Liz give an artist talk on collaborative making. During the Q&A, I told Liz how, in two thousand eighteen, I'd been introduced to CRP by poet professor Erica Meitner. Commonplace episode six, like Erica and many other writer educators I know, I've been experimenting with non-traditional models of teaching for years hoping to find more humane, anti-racist, individualized, anti-hierarchical ways of teaching and learning. I told Liz how Erica sent me PDFs of Liz's book, The Critical Response Process, A Method for Getting Useful Feedback on Anything You Make from Dance to Dessert, and two short summaries of the process, and that these became essential to my teaching. Oh, I was an earnest fangirl stammering and crying into my mask with appreciation for Liz. I told Liz I was not alone amongst poet educators in my reverence for CRP, and that I wanted to make an episode of Commonplace about her and the critical response process. Liz laughingly tolerated my awkward declarations of adoration and said, if I returned two days later, On the opening day of Wicked Bodies, she'd find a few minutes between rehearsals to record a chat about CRP. It is that chat, interspersed with a conversation I recorded remotely nine months later on August 8, 2022, with John Borstel that you are about to hear. John Borstel is the co-writer with Liz and editor of the amazing new book just out from Wesleyan University Press, Critique is Creative, the critical response process in theory and action. Yes, CRP is a process for giving and receiving feedback and will be, I think, of particular interest to anyone who teaches. But it is also a movement, a philosophy, a practice, a discipline, a template, a challenge, an invitation to think and listen and teach and learn and make and be in a radically new way. I'll be back in a few minutes to give you some more information. But I want to get to Liz and John and give you a sense of what's at stake here as quickly as possible.
1: Okay. Okay. So da da da. da. Okay. So just before we jump in, please give me a little sense of this. I know Aaron's told me, and also, I don't know, just hello. <laughs> hello.
0: I know, right? Like what's... And are you
1: do you edit these or
0: I lightly edit. Got it. As I sort of said to you the other night I know that was wild <laughs> It was wild Rachel I mean it's real it's like and I don't want I don't want to take up your yeah. time like we're I, gonna
1: we're gonna do it this way yeah
0: right you don't need to like describe unless you want to you know all the steps and stuff like that and I'm gonna refrain from like just professing my gratitude and undying love. You
1: already (laughs) did it. So we're good. Okay. We can jump in and, uh, you know, we'll go where it goes and awesome.
0: So I was hoping that we could start with, um, like, where were you in your life? What was going on when this, what became the critical response process sort of, uh, began to be manifest for you and, and how did it, uh, develop,
1: um, well, the question of beginnings is always an interesting question, right? Because where should we really start? As I've written recently, because there's a book coming out about critical response, I think it starts in the womb. Yeah. <laughs> People are already telling you all kinds of stuff that they want you to do in the way they expect you to be. So it starts along a long time ago and in retrospect after I had really put critical response together I had reflected longer on the journey Mm. trying to pinpoint those places along the way that would have um, been an engine to to, to keep pushing and one of them was uh, my early classical training uh, which as I've said is there's something lovely about classicism in the sense that you know where you stand and you have to reach this thing and you have nothing to do with having set those standards but uh the the nature of my coming up years it was pretty brutal and even as a child i had a sense that the, uh, there was something wrong about the way the, the boundaries were being stepped over all the time as mm. to what seemed to me to be what was really going on with my dancing mm. so that, that i think they started early but i would say there's a, an accumulation of processes at work. You know, I taught technique class for years. And in dance technique classes, you know, there's a teacher. And then there can be anywhere from, you know, a few people to 40, 50 people in a class. And the teacher's the one giving all the information. But the thing in dance is that, you know, most dancers take class forever. Lots of people have knowledge in the room. I found it really frustrating mm. that it, if I was giving, say, a comment to a student, everybody else... Either listen to that or whatever. So I had begun to deal with, in that environment, pairing people up, having them watch each other, realizing we needed some kind of protocols that could help that, and finding quite a bit of energy around it. This all preceded mm-hmm. critical response itself. You know, I was a young choreographer. You get a context and understanding the Washington Post at that time had three dance critics. I wow. mean, it's so incredible when you see that. We would, we would get reviewed. Even as a young person, I was being reviewed. And yes, you know, the reviews themselves, up, down, warm, cold, you know, whatever. But what I noticed was that I was in constant communion with the critics in my head for days afterwards. Huh. And I started to wonder about this. And could I, could I be in conversation with them? And because I didn't, it wasn't so much the good, bad. It was being misunderstood that drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. Just crazy. And everybody told me, no, you can't, your professional knowledge, you can't talk to the critics, you're not allowed to do that, you know. And that, again, struck me either as something wrong with the system or made me bereft of something that I clearly needed. And if the critics weren't going to give it to me, then where could I? Yeah. But it turned out, Rachel, you couldn't get it with your colleagues because nobody had any processes. So, you know, it
0: sort of being meaningful feedback. Yes. Response.
1: The the idea that you had created something and you wanted feedback on it. And as I've often said, good feedback is the kind that makes you want to go back to work. Yep. You you know, you get me back to that studio. It's not the fact that you were not like it wasn't the greatest thing ever or whatever.
0: Maybe let's flip actually to the present and then go back. So there's a new book coming out. Um, can you talk about that a little? What it's, what's it called?
1: Um... Uh, yeah, it, the title is Critique is Creative. The book is um, co-written by John Borstel and myself, but edited by John. Uh-huh. And it, it also includes uh, 20 contributors uh, from across the United States and some from abroad. Working with critical response in different kind of ways. So somebody who's been working in in with incarcerated folks, some people in uh, different religious settings, a lot of educational settings of various age groups, some people considering its effectiveness uh, in anti-racism work, things like that. And then John and I have written together. You get some conversation between us, but then we've each also have certain sections what was wonderful about writing it is that we really went into the principles and values of each of the steps. Mm. Um, Because we're seeing a lot of variation, which personally I delight in. Mm -hmm. I'm glad. I want variation. This is not totally the same every single time. But you vary it better if you understand those principles. For example, one of the questions that comes up all the time in most educational institutions is, this takes so long. Mm -hmm. How are you going to do it? It's too long. And my friend Cristobal Martinez, who's part of Post Commodity, which is an indigenous art collective, he says, no, it doesn't take long enough. Yeah. He calls it ceremony. Uh-huh. And so when you hear something like that, then you go back and say, okay, how is this like ritual? And actually, what I began to understand about critical response, and it cracks me up that it took all these years, but well, in, you know in dance, we say you practice the steps, but dancing is not about the steps. It's like that in critical response. You practice the steps, but it's not about the steps. It's about the values, the treatment of each other, the, the digging in and questioning. And the steps hold you to those values which are really hard to do.
2: mm-hmm.
0: John.
2: Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you too. It is so wonderful to see you in your embodied state after emailing back and forth and also reading your words in this incredible book that I'm really, really excited to bring to people who have never heard of Liz Lerman or the critical response process and maybe equally or more importantly to people who have been practicing critical response process from secretly passed around Xeroxes of like one or two pages and then annotated notes that they got from someone who got them from someone else who got them from someone else. I would like to invite the listener to listen to this short quote from Critique is Creative. And either pause the recording and do this exercise yourself now, or come back to it at the end of the episode. Think of a time when you had an energizing experience of feedback, or think about a person whom you trust to give you useful feedback, defining good feedback as the kind that leaves you so you can't wait to get back to work. What happened in these encounters that made them effective? What concrete approaches or principles were at play? Are you still with me, listener? I hope so. Thinking about your own early experiences of feedback, about what feedback means to you and to others, about why and how the way we offer and receive feedback matters, in and out of schools, to artists, to children, to lovers, to friends, to strangers. A few days ago, I began my semester of teaching at NYU. It's my 13th year at NYU, my 28th year of teaching. So of course I'm thinking about my students and about my role as teacher. I'm also thinking about feedback and feedback communities more generally as well. I'm thinking about therapy and AA. I'm thinking about how people reacted to the news of my divorce. I'm thinking about my newly beloved Mr. Mann, who is an actual editor, and about whether I too am an editor, and whether editing is or isn't feedback. I'm thinking about the new modes, tones, and methods of feedback in my relationship with Mr. Mann. I'm thinking about the many books and systems based on or inspired by the critical response process, including the Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom by Felicia Rose Chavez, which is an amazing book that I highly recommend, and Craft in the Real World, Rethinking Fiction Writing and Workshopping by Matthew Salaces, which I've just started reading and so far love. I'm thinking about Helena Betya Rubinstein's article, toward changing the language of creative writing classrooms, praise like criticism can make us forget what art is for, which first came out in 2019. I'm thinking about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the days of awe and my relationship to Judaism in the context of feedback and response. Feedback How we learn from others what we're doing and making and what we want to be doing and making is practical, personal, political, and spiritual. Here's some information about who you're listening to. Liz Lerman is a choreographer, performer, writer, educator, and speaker, and the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, a United States Arts Ford Fellowship in Dance, and the Jacobs Pillow Dance Award. A key aspect of her artistry is opening her process to various publics, from shipbuilders to physicists, resulting in both research and outcomes that are participatory, relevant, urgent, and usable by others she founded Liz Lerman Dance Exchange in 1976 and led it until 2011. Liz conducts residencies in critical response process, creative research, the intersection of art and science, and the building of narrative within dance performance at such institutions as Harvard, Yale School of Drama, Wesleyan, Guildhall School of Music and Drama, the National Theater Studio, among others. Her third book, Hiking the Horizontal, Field Notes from a Choreographer, was published in 2011 by Wesleyan University Press. By the way, I'm listening to Hiking the Horizontal as an audiobook and absolutely loving it. As of 2016, Liz Lerman is an institute professor at Arizona State University. John Borstel is a maker, writer, and facilitator of experiences in critique and learning whose award-winning artistic work combines imagery, performance, and text. On the administrative staff of Liz Lerman Dance Exchange from 1993 to 2015, he coordinated numerous projects in documentation, communication, and evaluation, reflecting the stage and community work of this innovative performance company. Co-author and illustrator of Liz Lerman's Critical Response Process, 2003, John has traveled widely to teach and facilitate this unique feedback system. As project advisor and director of CRP certification for Liz Lerman, LLC, he continues to collaborate with Lerman on online education and writing projects. John's writing on the arts has appeared in Youth Drama Ireland, Generations, Parterre Box, and multiple projects for Animating Democracy. John holds a BA in English from Georgetown and an MFA in Interdisciplinary Arts from Goddard College. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of Hiking the Horizontal, field notes from a choreographer by Liz Lerman, or... The Critical Response Process in Theory and Action, by Liz Lerman and John Borstel, both courtesy of Wesleyan University Press. All patrons will gain access to an audio file of Liz Lerman reading Critical Response at Home, an essay from her book, Hiking the Horizontal, published by Wesleyan University Press, and The Gift You Give Yourself, John Borstel's Prescription for a Daily Drawing Practice. John writes, Described in this PDF is a structure I devised and am happy to share. It is essentially a form of visual journaling that works equally well for those who have a visual arts practice and for those who have been discouraged about visual artistic expression. Tangentially related to CRP, it offers, among other things, a way to gain perspective on the human penchant for self-judgment. Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to the Dance Exchange, expanding who gets to dance, where dance happens, what dance is about, and why dance matters. Commonplace has no ads, no institutional or corporate funding. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, please visit commonpodcast.com or patreon.com slash podcast. On our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter and make a one-time donation to support the work that goes into making this podcast. Even if you don't have the means to support us financially, we love feedback. What excites, intrigues, pleases, perplexes you about Commonplace? Who or what would you like us to feature on the show What kinds of useful, non-traditional, anti-racist teaching practices have you encountered or employed? We'd love to know. Please email us at rachel at commonpodcast.com, send us messages on Twitter or Instagram, or leave us a voice message on SpeakPipe or our Google voicemail number, all of which can be found on our website. Shana Tova Umituka Happy New Year to all of you. Happy New School Year or New Month or New Moon or New Day or Fresh Start. May each of you be favorably inscribed in the Book of Life, the Book of Hope, the Book of Love. And now, back to John and Liz. So, John, I would love to hear one of your it could be an early feedback experience or it could be a re- recent feedback experience. And I'd also love to hear you talk a little bit about why, if we, if some people feel they don't have time for any of this, why we should make time to start by asking participants to think or write or in response to this question about...
2: So, um, Rachel, the question that you've shared from the book, think of a time uh, when you've had a positive experience of feedback, what's going on. That is a question we invariably ask people to reflect on anytime we gather to share this process. And um, I think in doing so, what often comes up is one, people have had these experiences. Uh, People have had moments when uh, they've gained an insight or really felt liberated to move on. And when you ask people in general to talk about the resonance of feedback experience, you're getting to pretty elemental human stories. Uh, Like Liz likes to say, feedback starts the minute you're born. And we were we were just at my house here, we were just hosting some family. Among the family was a two-year-old grandniece. I was struck by how much of the exchange with a two year old is all feedback, both going towards her, yes this, good job, Uh, wait a second, I don't think you want to do that, and coming from her uh, in this wonderful way that's wonderfully unfiltered from a two year old, but would give you pause coming from a 20 year old. So these, these experiences are elemental, and often we find that when people talk about them, they're uh, not only sharing sort of good practice in giving and getting feedback, but they're often talking about some big turning point in their lives. So, in reflecting on my own experience, uh, I share a bunch of them in the book, and the one I'd like to share is not so much an answer to that question of, think of a time when it went well, but it might point a little bit more towards some of why this is, a, why this is an issue some of why in an arts learning context, we've got some challenges and dilemmas around the giving and getting feedback. And this happened like about halfway through my lived life so far. Uh, I was in my late twenties. I was working as a graphic designer. So I took a course in illustration at a a pretty high level uh, arts college. And every year, every week we'd have an assignment we, the assignments would go up on a board and we'd do this kind of freewheeling art uh, art school crit type of thing where the professor would sort of expound, point to things that he thought was effective, point out things that weren't working, and then sort of open the floor. Now, um, I have to say, as a graphic designer, I was like, you know, working my way into illustration, I did not have the strong draw- I did not have the strong drawing skills that many of my classmates had, so I was kind of compensating for that by eh, trying to be clever, uh, you know, p- putting an idea forward conceptually. And so, you know, we've got these sort of like beautifully rendered things up on the wall, and we have my little efforts up on the wall next to each other. And among my classmates was somebody who had wonderful artistic skills, could do beautiful renderings, just had, and had, you know, any medium you put in your hand, she had finesse with it. Um, But, you know, I would look at her work in this kind of competitive way. You know, I turned on this competitive thing in my mind, and I'd think, ah, she's good, but, you know, there's not much there. You know, I don't see ideas. So there was one session where... um, uh, she, our, our assignment was to combine complementary colors in, in, in an illustration, a still life. And she did this beautiful image of curling autumn leaves and presented it and rhapsodized about how beautiful the season was. And, you know, I stood by and I, I know I made like, like dismissive noises. And when it came time to look at what I had drawn, which was this weird little still life that had a tortoise skull and a staple remover and some anagram tiles in it. And it was very overworked, I can tell you this. Uh, This student who I was making noises at turned to me and she said, John, why do you always have to be so weird? Those, uh, Those things together are just weird. They're strange. And we were sort of, we were at odds with each other. We were actually two students in a learning environment who had complementary skills, who had complementary orientations, and in a different framework, and I would say in a different framework for critique and giving and getting feedback, in a different framework, we could have been learning from each other. I could have been, <laughs> I could have been getting tips about my technique, I could have been opened up to a different way of seeing the world than I had. And she could have been perhaps learning something about conceptual stuff or, or getting freed up to be a little more weird than she was willing to be or something like that. So that's a moment that sticks with me in terms of thinking about a formal critique situation that was a traditional kind of thing for the environment it was in that actually was not achieving the goals that that environment is pointed towards. And I take a lot of responsible, uh, responsibility myself for why that Why that wasn't as functional as it could have been. And this was years ago, years before I was to encounter critical response and years before I was myself to start teaching art and really thinking about uh, the way critique works in that kind of learning situation.
0: That. Thank you for sharing that. And just to kind of fill in the picture a little bit what we're talking about by these formal, uh, kind of more traditional classroom settings or critique settings. I studied photography as an undergraduate pretty seriously, and what I remember of the critiques was I would put my work up on the wall, and the professor I was I was not to speak of the work, and that's that has been a standard for a very long time in poetry workshops. That you know the author doesn't speak throughout the entire process, and then um, in my photography critiques, the professor would come and just take down the ones that she didn't approve of or didn't like for some reason, and then I might be left, if I was lucky, with like one photograph on the wall or maybe two, and there wasn't really an in-depth explanation about what the teacher even liked. These formal settings tend to be uh, very authoritative or even authoritarian, um, very competitive based, very sort of last man standing. Like if you can make it through this, maybe you'll be an artist and not collaborative. What, what else am I forgetting Like when we talk about these sort of formal or traditional critiques?
2: I think in that narrative, you've identified a number of typical features in traditional critique. One is often the case that the artist is not to speak. The artist actually may have no agency in this situation. The premise, I think, for that is that the art should be there to speak for itself without the support of the artist. But what I feel that always loses is the fact that this is work in progress, and we're embracing it as work in progress with the sense that, I'm walking into this situation without claiming that I've got everything figured out, um, without, uh, with some unknowns. And let's embrace that possibility, the unknown, and make me, the artist, part of a conversation about it. The other thing you've, you've, the other thing you've identified is um, this idea of an authority figure who delivers the pronouncement from on high of what's working and what isn't, uh, often without any kind of theoretical explanation. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think that's because they don't have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> I think it's because they want to um, uh, engender a kind of mystique about themselves as being sources of knowledge that, that, that you're going to have to strive, uh, strive to get. And in some environments it's even like, you do the crit and you have to stand up to it at art school you might go out for a beer with the professor afterwards, and he or she could break that down for you a little bit, and that's part of the kind of almost insidious culture that gets built in, built into these institutions. You're required to do that kind of kowtowing to get to get the to get the riches,
0: right? And, and there's you helped me also remember, you know, one of the most important differences to me is that if if the goal is to help an artist or student or learner get back to work, to be excited to get back to work. That is a really fundamentally different goal than the goal in the more traditional formal kind of learning environment of surviving the hazing. Or the 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 feedback, which is a, which is almost always rejection. Like if you can't survive this rejection, and one of the things that I noticed with graduate students um, when I teach them is that some of them have really become addicted to getting rejected, and it takes a while for them to let go of that because they feel like they're not getting any feedback or they're not getting serious feedback or they're not getting useful feedback unless they're told something that is pretty much soul crushing. But you, does being crushed make you excited to get back to work? It certainly didn't for me and it doesn't for me. So that I think also is like one of a really fundamental difference.
2: And I would add Uh, that the system tends to be self-perpetuating because when you get to a level of addiction in that kind of feedback, but you survive the haze, get your degree, end up teaching somewhere else, your reward is, not that you're an excellent artist or teacher, your reward is you get to stick it to the next generation and you get to perpetuate that behavior on, uh, on someone else. Absolutely.
1: So there was a lot of searching going on that led to this notion, but I would say that the catalyst occurred when we were at two different dance festivals, well, two different festivals. One was a dance festival, the Colorado Dance Festival and the other was Alternate Roots, which still exists. The, the, the Colorado festival is gone, although it was a great festival then, and the person who founded it has gone on to do a lot of wonderful environmental work. But at both these festivals, and they couldn't be more unalike. I mean, they were really different from each other. They were doing what they were calling work-in-progress events, and people would get up and show work, and then there were supposed to be discussions afterwards, and in both cases, I found myself unhappy uh, I thought they were floundering. I thought there was a lot of problems, and I was close. To, I was getting closer mm. to what critical response was. So I asked both festivals, "Would they bring me back the next year, and I would be ready?" And they did. And I'm so grateful for that. It's like anything when you sort of set that goal, and you, I said, "I've got it." Do you remember what year
0: this was roughly?
1: Uh, it would be the early '90s. Gotcha. I would. Just say that the thing that I did the most during that year was asked everybody I knew this question. I've posed the question this way. Why are there some people in your life you can hear anything from? Mm. What is that about? What is going on? Is it something, what is it in the relationship? Or is there something in the conditions of the conversation? And what I was curious about, and sure enough, it showed up there was a lot of overlap. What, why... Because it, it, critical response is not judgment free. There's lots of critique in it, but um, and what people almost always talked about was trust and respect. Which, if you say to somebody, "Okay, what do you? How do you know you're, How do you know you're in a trustful relationship?" Then that's when you get the information. Mm. Well, they have my back, or um, I know they care beyond the conversation we're having. I mean, you you hear and you, I would hear the mm. same thing over and over again. Sometimes you would hear a lot about people ask me questions. Uh Sometimes people would say things like, well, I know that they care about the work. Sometimes it would say they care about me as a person, but you could start to see the steps of critical response actually being formed in the context of these answers.
0: Mm -hmm. So, and then, so you went back the next year and how was it different when you went back uh, the following year after having like, Crowdsourced these yeah. answers to this question. Yes, yeah, so
1: I had done that, and I also was testing it. Like we had developed at that time, it was six steps, mm-hmm. uh, but we were able to collapse them. And the first steps undergone any number of revisions around language, not around its intent, but around language. Um, at Alternate Roots, there was instantaneous love, curiosity. People grabbed it, and it was almost like coevolution because it it went out from Alternate Roots really fast. It was really like a we about it. It's, it's, it's something we're working on. And I got a l- feedback from some of those folks for a while about how they were using it. At the Colorado Dance Festival, I'm less clear about the impact. I know we did it, and I think people were happy with it and excited. I, meanwhile, continued to work it on myself and on other people, and basically to offer it. You know, we, we printed it out and, like, mimeographed or something like that and put it out, told people to write us. There were a couple, I remember a few early sessions where I was on tour with some, like in North Carolina or somewhere, and people wanted critical response, and a big crowd came. Mm. They, I mean, people were interested in what was seeming to develop. Nobody, it does, didn't have the the, word, the language around it like it does now where people know what we mean, but but I was really attacked mm. in these, some of these big meetings. I mean, attacked. Yeah. And that was fascinating. <laughs> And where the attacks seemed the most, as I think back through it, the, those early attacks were predominantly from men, predominantly from people with a lot of expertise, who we have, the way we say it now, had a lot of privilege, but I didn't understand that then. I just thought, I, that for some reason, they were highly threatened. I, I was surprised. It was pretty bruising. And then there were also competing systems where... I mean, I was just putting it out, <laughs> yep. but then people say, "But wait, I've got this thing." Uh, and again, I what? Why I talk about this now in this context of this conversation is that, as hard as that was, it also gave me, a, forced me to continue to articulate what is happening when we're doing critical bonds. Why does it matter? Mm-hmm. Who's it for? What's going on? And. I began to understand that there was like a whole contextual life around it. That was fascinating. I hadn't known I was going to be doing that. I hadn't known. But it was really interesting because I was beginning, of course, to see right from the get-go, no critical response session is the same. Right. Every single one requires you to be so thoughtful about what's happening. Who knew that? So then over the next few years, the steps began to um, coalesce. And then we got some interest from places like New York Theatre Workshop, which was a very early adapter. And we came, I came, and I think John Borsal was with me on that trip, because he was beginning now to become a real scribe and then really a, a holder of a shepherd, I would say, a shepherd of the process. And that New York Theatre Workshop thing was awesome. And there, there we found, oh, an instantaneous recognition that something is happening here that was used. And they still use it. Mm-hmm. And they, they've incorporated it in so many different ways. And that was very affirming.
0: Mm. I'm just like, you know, taking mm-hmm. it in. Um, yeah. I think for me, um, two things came together in my own life. One was having gone to these like very elite educational Systems, uh, I was an undergrad at Yale, and then I went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop for poetry um, and then my life took the many turns um, i I'm, I have three kids, um, and I got really interested in birth work and so I trained to become a labor doula and that training just helped me begin the process of dismantling and unlearning the way I had learned. And then I I thought, well, I'm never gonna be able to go back into the classroom, because I've learned that support is not about fixing someone's problem. You know, as a doula, you don't take away, the the person having the baby is having the baby. and, And how are you meaningfully present without, you're not a doctor, you're not trying to change their experience, you're responding to them and I thought I can't this is the way I want to be in the world with my children, with my students, with my, you know, partner, with with the world. How can I go back into the classroom and teach poetry in any way other than, you know, someone brings me a poem and I say keep going. Like that that's all I could imagine that would be not a form of violence, basically. And then, you know, past, like, magic papers comes the critical response process, you know, which really was a ritual, and it was a a training that I was ready for because I was looking for a way to be and to be in relation. Okay, so one of us needs to sort of outline... What are the steps, would you like
2: to? Yeah, let me uh, give it a uh, start, Uh, and if you'd like to chime in with your insights, because you've described already to me your experience with the process, and there is no better school for critical response than just to be doing it and doing it and kind of learning from, from the practice of it. The place it starts is with work in progress this idea that uh, you are putting forward something that is incomplete, that is in a formative rather than completed stage. You may have unresolved issues about it. You may have lots of unknowns. And critical response embraces the idea that this is a really positive place to be in. I sometimes talk about the wonderful freedom of not being finished got a kind of expansiveness, and you bring that expansiveness to bear in a form of critique that's dialogic. It's going to involve you, the artist, in a conversation and exchange with others. So it starts with the showing or sharing of the work. Uh, and if uh, you're working on a poem, you're sharing your draft of the poem. Uh, if you're working on a dance, it may be a five-minute excerpt. Uh, so it's, it's, it starts with the sharing. The first step of the process, and this is typically a facilitated process, so you've got somebody functioning in the room to hold the center. Often in an academic situation, that's a teacher, but we encourage people to share that role. And the first step of the process is something we call statements of meaning. Uh, Some of our, our active doers in the process lately like to use the term statements of resonance. And that starts with a question from the facilitator, which is, What is exciting, meaningful, memorable, interesting, evocative to you about the work you're seeing? And you can hear from that, that there's a filter there for things that are impressing the viewer or the audience with some kind of experience, with some kind of meaning, with some kind of resonance, and you're sharing from that energy what you're experiencing. This is not necessarily about saying something nice just for the sake of saying something nice, though sometimes what people hear feels like it lives in that category. But if you've got real discomforts, if you really have a strong opinion that things need to go in another another direction, or you see this unfinished work and you know how you'd finish it, you hold off on that stuff for the time being. So by the end of that step, The artist has collected a lot of sense of uh, what's working in their work, how an audience is receiving it, but but the thing that interests me most is how it sort of sets up a relationship at the get-go of the process. Liz talks a lot about how the process builds in relationship building, and it completes the kind of loop that you want to have happen when you make art. You want to be connecting with someone and... Uh, you want to know that you are connecting with someone. And that is the platform that step one lays for the rest of the process. So moving on to step two, uh, we talked a little bit about the idea of an artist keeping silent in a critique. That's a standard way of doing things in a lot of worlds. I've experienced it and had positive and negative experiences with it. In my advocating for critical response, I also advocate for sort of an ecumenical ways of doing critique, and uh, there can be times and places where the artist keeping silent has its place. This place is not critical response. (laughs) In critical response, the artist is playing an active role in the dialogue. And in that formulation of work in progress, we're asking the artist to take real active responsibility for their work. And that doesn't mean defending it. But it means that they are thinking hard about it, that they are thinking to the next place it's going to go. And if they have doubts, if their first impulse in showing work is to apologize for it uh, or to make an excuse for it, okay, acknowledge all that, but you're going to channel that into a special challenge you have in step two, which is to ask your artist questions of the group of people who has experienced your work you are asking questions of them about their experience of their work, the work. And these can be very specific questions. They can be general questions. Uh, they can be phrased with a bias. They, you can t- try to take your bias out and asking them, but you're really trying to ask questions that are going to advance your own understanding of what it is you've made. Responders in answering that question that the artist has posed may say Anything that's honest, as long as it stays on topic with the question. So an example I like to give is uh, if I'm a visual artist and I've created a bunch of canvases on tri- with a triangular format, and I ask, what do you think of the shapes of my canvas? You could say, oh, um, uh, the shape seems a little trite to me. It doesn't seem to be achieving anything for the work or the triangle has intense symbolic power for me. All of that is an honest, direct answer. What you couldn't say, however, is, or what your facilitator might intervene on you for saying is, oh, the shape doesn't matter so much to me, but I want to talk to you about your colors, they're very muddy, I don't get those muddy colors. You can't change the topic uh, of the artist's questions because they're setting the agenda at step two. And this is a really important idea because you get to hear from the artists what their concerns are. They're stepping in at the beginning of the process to really set a kind of an agenda. It's not to say that there isn't more that can be discussed, but we're really hearing the artist's concerns at the conversation that a lot of people like to say really centers the artist.
0: I know I said, oh, let's just lay it out and then we'll go deeper. But I'd like to just talk about which value underlies these two steps So uh, step one, statements of meaning, um, or statements um, of resonance, which I really like. I sometimes say statements of observation. Observation is so vital and um, underused, I think, in in poetry classes, uh, for sure.
2: So Rachel, I'm glad you bring up value because one of the things I do like to say at the outset of talking about critical response is that it's kind of a spectrum with a couple of uh, signposts and at one end of the spectrum there is this idea that it is a formal four-step process as we're in the act of describing now but at another end its principles and values and it's at that level that you really start to internalize the process and start to see all the possible ways of using it and ways that it can infuse learning and doing and making and, and, and collaboration. Uh, so one of the things i love about step 1 is if you start out the experience of asking someone to respond to work and that person knows that the first thing they'll need to say is what's exciting, meaningful, memorable, interesting, evocative. If they know that they're going to start looking at the work in a different way. It's, you know, you can even try this if you go into a gallery, walk into a room, think, "uh, impressionism, i'm not so keen on impressionism, i'm going to move on." No. I'm not going to move on. I'm going to walk around and ask myself what's exciting, meaningful, memorable, interesting, evocative. What's resonating for me, even in work that may not be my cup of tea. So observation I think is key. I think the uh, another important value is it's about sort of this listening loop. It, it, you know, the other side of observation is that oh oh you are paying attention to the work. I have made an offering in in putting the work forward, you are making an offering back to me with these statements and observations. And that sort of concludes a relational loop that is both the thing we want to have happening when we make art and a basis for a, a a valuable critique session. You know, another core value in the process is this idea of inquiry. You see it come up in step two, it gets started, um, where the value of asking questions is at the center of it. And this is not simply functional uh, in terms of a way to move the feedback forward. I think of, we call the book Critique is Creative, and that's based in the observed conviction that when people get into the disciplines of this process, it's generative. So simply the act of confronting the thing I've made or the thing that I've been invested in composing for two hours, two weeks, two years, and ask myself, what are my questions? If I have to ask myself a question, what is that? That's a creative act because your, your, your brain is firing in new ways once you move into that mode of inquiry. So it's both sort of a creative
0: mode and a dialogic mode. Uh, maybe you were about to say this, but underlying all the steps, but I see it especially in this first step, is this wonderful way in which it destabilizes the hierarchy um, in the classroom, right? The expert uh, versus, you know, the novice. When you start by saying, what excites you? What interests you? There is a sense that your individual response matters. That you have something to share. It's not a right or a wrong question. It, it but it does require attention, practice, participation, honesty, uh, res- restraint, uh, and good faith. Really.
2: I'd like to step in on that question of sure. not the process being non-hierarchical. Liz's earlier book is called Hiking the Horizontal. And she's very invested in the whole idea of what happens when we turn hierarchies on their sides and are dealing with a horizontal spectrum of possibility. And she very much enacts this in her own life as a choreographer, as a teacher, as as an inspiration to people uh, in building environments that are not necessarily hierarchical. So it's interesting when you bring this non-hierarchical process into hierarchical environments, like say a corporation or a classroom, are you asking people to throw out the the hierarchy? Not necessarily, but you're asking people to suspend their hierarchical roles for a given set-aside period of time. And the teacher can take back their authority. The teacher Mm -hmm. can, 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 can be the guide and the leader Later. But within the process, you're really exercising other possibilities. And so, for a teacher to be thinking about not how am I going to tell this student what to do next, but what can I say in a critical process that's really going to guide a student to their own solution, that's really going to set the path for discovery? How can I encourage it from everybody in the room? That's, that's the beauty and the challenge that you have in, in suspending
0: the hierarchy, at least for the moment. Okay, so stage two, the artist questions, when the artist asks the questions, as, as you've just outlined. I have this fabulous quote um, from the book. Step two is a validation of the artist's priorities, terms, and ultimate control as the creator of the work. Um, so the value there in part is by allowing the artist to ask questions rather than remain silent, you you right away say, look, the artist is the creator of this work and is going to set the terms for how the work gets talked about um, and has control. And that is a, a, a really different principle. Um, what What else would you say, Um, about step two.
2: One of the interesting things that happens sometimes is that, uh, you know, we we talked about some of the typical uh, crit situations in arts learning environments and particularly in ones that are sort of classically based people do not have this skill. The idea of asking questions about your own work can be almost antithetical to uh, the way you've been taught, the idea that you're assuming tradition from a long line of practitioners, uh, you're not supposed to have questions. You're supposed to have answers, and the answers are supposed to be in the work. So actually, skill building to ask questions is, becomes a really critical part of how we share the process. And this is one of the ways in which the process, how we share the process, has changed a lot. Years ago, we used to just do the process like three or four times in a training. Now we've developed all these ways of of helping people develop the skills. Relative to step two, one of the things we do is, sometimes we'll have people sit down with a sheet of paper and block it off into uh, quadrants or shapes, and they'll label them with things like hopes, excuses, aspirations. Uh, process, Uh, insight, Uh, a bunch of labels uh, for dimensions of what they might be experiencing with work-in-progress midstream. And just ask them to jot down thoughts in response to those words. And after they've done that, what questions can you generate from that? And this is a case where that uh, generative possibility of question formulation happens because people are sort of caught in this act of turning Liz, one of Liz's great phrases is turn discomfort into inquiry. So Mm. taking all this unknown stuff, all of this broiling stuff that you're not sure how to give words to, and if you haven't been taught, taught and trained how to ask questions, you may be at a loss, When you do an exercise like that, you begin to generate questions and the question generation is also a larger creative process. Awesome,
0: okay, step three, tell us.
2: Okay, in step three of critical response process, this question and answer relationship between the artist and the responders is reversed. And now the people we call the responders have a chance to ask questions of the artist. There is a really specific protocol around this. The language we use to describe it is evolving, but the essential idea here is, can you ask a question of the artist that does not hold an opinion or bias evident in your asking of the question? Our settled language for this is to call it the neutral question. That's useful language, to know about, uh, it's not always useful language in practice because people sometimes feel like it's a kind of gag order on anything that I'm thinking, um, or I've got, to be, I've got to feel neutral and I don't feel neutral. The discipline though is, can you ask a question that does not hold a bias? That works a couple of ways. One is to find questions that are not coming from a place of bias. What question could you ask the, of the artist that will stimulate them? Uh, what, where are you really curious? How has this stimulated your curiosity and, and uh, what can you offer from the artist out of that curiosity that might be of service to them? The other place of genesis for, for these neutral or non-biased questions is opinion. I've got a really strong opinion. I know what this artist needs to do. Or why aren't they thinking about this or that? Or why are your colors so muddy? <laughs> How can you take that impassioned opinion and ask a question about it that is going to get the artist to think forward. Because we often say, if you ask that question, why are the colors so muddy? The reaction is likely to be, well, I don't think of them as muddy, or uh, you've got to understand uh, the the whole narrative behind my work to to know why I've chosen those colors. Um, it's It's immediate defensiveness. Um, and one of our axioms about the process is that when defensiveness starts, learning stops. When defensiveness starts, listening stops. It really is like a wall going up and nothing can penetrate the wall. So how can you ask a question in a way that's going to keep the dialogue going, going to keep the artist exploring? Ideally, the question that's going to get the artist not to deliver the the artist statement that they wrote at the beginning of the semester or because their their agent told them to write a, an artist statement, um, but the, the reflection that gets beyond what they already know into the place of the unknown. So um, in the example that I used, it could be something as simple as tell me about the color choices you've made. You know, we often tell people, if you're worried about whether these questions are free of bias, if you're worried about whether your opinion isn't evident, if you're worried that an opinion is gonna creep into your question, go ahead and ask the question anyway. And then we'll do the rehabilitation clinic for the non-neutral question. Uh, Because it can be very interesting with a group to really talk about what would make the question neutral, how do we frame that question neutral. And this is like a two-way contract between the artists and the responders. Because if the artist has had, heard that discussion and actually knows the opinion behind the question, they've got to sort of own their part of the contract, which is to answer, the once the question is free of bias, answer the question as they hear it. So there is a little bit of discipline on the artist's part to cultivate their own non-defensiveness.
0: And uh, the quote that I was gonna read um, just from about this is exactly what you were saying. One intended function of the neutral questions is to diffuse defensiveness on the part of the artist and inspire reflection on the opinion of the responder. And that these neutral questions help build the relationship with an artist and navigate the known and the unknown What value do you think is most important to you and or principle um, in this neutral questions or non-biased questions step?
2: I like to talk about a quality I call mindful judgment agility. Sometimes when people encounter critical response process and this is if you talk to other people about the process they may tell the story differently. So this is definitely John talking. Uh, Sometimes when people talk about the process, they'll say, I like critical response process because it's non-judgmental. It takes the judgment out of critique. I never want to set up people in an experience of critique for the idea that they will not be judged, their work will not be judged, that there is no judgment here. Actually, I believe that judgment is central to the creative process. There are, however, times when you want to be free of it so that you can do divergent thinking, so that you can uh, have a freewheeling mind that's, that's uninhibited by uh, that little voice inside that's saying that won't work, or this isn't right, or it's not consistent with so-and-so. You want to be uh, fruitfully, divergently generative, so you suspend judgment at that point. But there's another point in the creative process that w- where you need to edit. You need to decide which path I'm going to take. You need to uh, you need to sort of pull you need you need to take those uh, fifteen photographs from the ta- that are on the table and narrow it down to four that really tell the story. That's that is uh, the judgment side of creativity, and I believe it is equally creative as all that divergent stuff. Okay. Critical response process holds within it a kind of, I like to believe, a kind of microcosm of the whole creative experience, which again is why critique is creative. Uh, And I think one of the functions that we ask everybody to do is to engage judgment and suspend judgment back and forth as they go through the process, internally and in their dialogue with the artist and for the artists themselves to be willing to to be judgmental about their work and also to suspend judgment when it's helpful. This is the skill that the neutral or unbiased question helps you build. I know my opinion. I have a judgment here. Can I think about the issue in a way that, that suspends the judgment from it? Enough to ask a question that's going to get the dialogue moving, that's going to get the artist thinking, that's going to get the work advancing. And then, There is a a place in the process to re-engage that judgment if I choose to, if we choose to.
0: Um, We're not going to get into this in our conversation, but practitioners who are using the critical response process and adapting the critical response process to decolonize the the classroom, um, to overtly, explicitly, productively Address issues of racism, bias, discrimination in the the critique and process. And I think that racism and, and discrimination need to be addressed in all the steps, but step three, in my experience, is where some of those conversations can most fruitfully be had. So for people listening who who feel like I don't have time to, to do this process because what I need to deal with is the racism in my classroom those are not separate agendas how was it for you working um, on the language when you were working Hmm. on the book you know going from the principles and the intentions and the values and then what you know Translating it into yeah. language?
1: Well, there, I mean, it's been interesting. I, as I said, the first, I would say the first and third steps are going through the most alteration. Interesting. Um, in the case of the first step, you know, originally I called it affirmation, and uh, over time I realized that that was making people say it was more about the artist than it was about the work, and so I mm-hmm. moved it back to, I mean, moved it to being about uh, meaning. But what I'm noticing now is with so many artists taking on a lot of personal material that comes from trauma, Mm -hmm. comes from really difficult histories. And what I'm hearing in the first step often is, um, thank you for doing this work. You're so brave. Hmm. It's really courageous of you to do this. And, And what that sounds to me like is we're paying attention to again, the spirit of the person. And what I've been trying to do now is expand it. It's almost like it's gone full circle. It's not either or you do affirmation, but that meaning right now includes an awareness that there are people and work where the person needs to be honored for having made it. Mm -hmm. And that's a difference in that step. And And then in the third step, you know, the idea of neutral, which of course we all know that's subjective, but still, nonetheless, it's actually a, a trigger word for some people, which I'll get into in a minute. But I, the use of the, the neutral question was designed, I didn't have the language at the time, to cut against power and to cut against uh, privilege, but that's what it does. It forces every one of us, no matter how expert we are, to ask ourselves, well, what's going on here? What is necessary for this person I'm talking to? Not what theory am I full of that I can now articulate, but what. But for some people coming from different cultures, there's a feeling that neutral can sometimes feel like it's shutting down the particular culture from which people are emanating. Mm. And uh, so there's a lot of discussion about it. And I like the term. I think it's useful. But I'm sort of augmenting. We're all trying to find language. And one of the ideas is that the third step is really about research. That you think you're gathering the information so that you can either, the artist decides because of what you're asking, they want to ask some more questions, or you're going to be what I call surgical in step four. You're not going to just lay out a whole theory. You're going to be really particular To what this person in front of you has just done. But that third step, some people may find that they want to say, you know, what uh, we're going to be looking for the neutral question, but also think of it as research. Think of it. A lot of people are talking about curiosity. You know, stay curious for as long as you can. Don't let those opinions arrive too soon. Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Okay,
0: step
2: four. Step four is the final step of the process, of the formal process. And uh, it is, in some ways, to people unfamiliar with the process, the step that can feel most arcane, stilted, ritualistic, and that term can be a turn-off for some people, a turn-on for other people, but it definitely feels like you're asked to do this thing because there is a script for it. In step four, we open the floor to opinions. But again, because the artist has a unique degree of agency in this critique, the opinion is first couched like this. You say to the artist, I have an opinion about your color palette for these paintings. Would you like to hear it? And the artist has the opportunity to say yes, Or no. So there are a bunch of things going on when that happens. In some ways it is ritualistic. Uh, It's ceremonial. It slows things down a little bit. It can be challenging for the responder to even think of, well, what is my I know my opinion, but what is it about? And often what happens to people when they get to that point, they realize, oh, there's a question. I need to step back to step three. And sometimes we do that. It's also a structure that makes people name their opinion as an opinion. Opinions can feel like a central driving, burning truths to us. And if we remember that they're just opinions and only my opinion, as opposed to everybody's opinion, it's a useful practice to repeat. When I've taught this process to teenagers, sometimes I'll like wad up a piece of paper and throw it at somebody who's not looking at me and they'll, they'll flinch and um, then I'll pick up the piece of paper, I'll look them in the eye, show them the piece of paper and throw it to them and they can receive it. So I often say that an opinion coming at you can feel like an object and knowing the nature of the opinion before you hear it can help you decide whether that object is a feather pillow or a bowling ball and how I'm gonna set myself up Bodily and emotionally to receive that opinion, it just gives us both a little bit of breathing time. There's the option of saying no as well. And this is another way in which our understanding of this process has evolved over the years as we've emphasized more and more the agency of the artist in choosing to say no. And nowadays when we train people in the process, we always take a moment to go around the circle and give people practice in saying no which turns out to be not just practice in saying no, but practice in hearing no. Yeah. Because that is also a skill we need to build. I was teaching people this process for 10 years before in a role play, I actually had an artist say no to one of my opinions. And it hit me, it hit <laughs> me to, to sort of get the information that my opinion wasn't gonna be of use to that person then. And what a great skill to build. <laughs> Uh, what a great thing to learn how to do and to, to, to feel like that doesn't end the relationship, that doesn't invalidate what I can offer this artist, it's just unique to this opinion, the artist didn't want to hear it. So uh, more times than not, the artist says yes, and the person with the opinion has the opportunity to share it.
0: I, I'm sure you've had people talk to you about the way in which, and I don't know if it's they're still called permissioned opinions, yeah. um, but the way in which that, at least in my experience, has taken on a, a profound importance in terms of consent, um, particularly when working, you know, with undergraduates, graduate students, and that that's something I didn't expect when I started to really use it in the classroom. But there's something that really clicks around practicing that step. And I feel like we're training people to understand consent in a very concrete and like less scary way.
1: People can't, you guys can't see me as I'm listening to Rachel (laughs) get to this question, but I just wanted, I'm nodding my head up and down and up and down because you know i i, I didn 't know the concept of consent all those years ago when I made it, although I must have mm-hmm. deep inside me because I developed it like that, but yes, it has taken on such power it 's so important, and also we find we're we 're working a lot with people now on saying no, yeah, uh, so we have been evolving a series, I guess you could call them exercises or uh, tools or approaches to support critical response. So if you want to practice some of these values, you have other things to do besides just doing the process over and over again. And this one, we've been playing a lot with this one because like, just if, if you do critical response and you're interested in that fourth step, as Rachel's been talking about, and you have, you may want everybody to practice saying no. And it's not only the practice of the person saying no, it is the practice of the responders to hear no in the circle. Because when it comes up in a pro- in a process and an artist says no, typically the responders, it's not that they gang up, but they suddenly feel like, well, wait a minute, one of my pals just got you know no said to them, and it's weird. It has a weird impact. So you practice, yeah, and you let people know, and it's a good thing. Yep, and you just but you have to like keep, give you know, talking about it, because. It is hard for people to do. We've also been discussing that a lot in relationship to the power structures. Like, do students feel that they can say no to their teacher? Yeah. Actually, it happens to me. Not a lot, but it happens. And actually, everybody just cracks up. But it's really useful to be told no. Yeah. And I have to think about that. Or the most recent time it happened. What was going on for this person that they didn't want to hear from me? And was it, you know... And it was really useful because, mm. in, of course, using critical response, I can go have a conversation with this person and get to understand more clearly what um, she needed at that moment. So, yeah, the, that fourth step, I, I I don't know if it's true. I was going to say it's John Borsell's favorite step right now. I don't know if that's true, but we did uncover a lot of new thoughts around it by writing the book. Exactly when you asked the question about language, what came to my mind was, oh, yes, the word consent. Yeah.
2: Often, in responding to work, our natural starting place is our opinions, particularly if you have a certain mindset. You know what you, you see work, you know what your opinions are, you know exactly what you think. You're going to tell the artist. And that's a starting place. But what I like to think is that critical response, rather than making opinion just the only place it starts and the only place it originates, it also makes opinion a destination. So if you really invest in all four steps of the process, saying what's resonant and meaningful to you about the work, really listening to the artist's questions and giving of your own relationship to the work to help the artist in that question. If you've got that burning question using step three, the neutral or unbiased question, to ask about the thing you have that opinion about. Talk to me about your color palette. Then, by the time you get to step four, a couple of things can happen. The artist can be really eager to hear your opinion, which they might not have been eager about before, and your opinion may have evolved. Mm -hmm. Your opinion might go out the window. You heard something that made you realize, oh, my opinion isn't really very useful. Or you might be able to express your opinion in a more directive, refined way, or you might be able to make it really surgical. Re- really, the briefest thing is going to be useful to the artist. You don't need to expound, as as often happens in a hierarchical environments. You don't need to expound to prove who you are and everything you know in expressing opinion. You can just give it to them directly because you've had the dialogue. You've built the relationship through the four steps of the process. Yes,
0: yes, 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 yes. I, and I love the fourth step. Um, I always say, give me some reasons why you might say no, you know, when when teaching the process. And that opens up a lot of discussion about previous harms that students have encountered. And and I find avoids um, proactively a lot of the things that are really not useful in a workshop or response setting. Teaching the step teaches much more than how to do the step. And, you know, you talk in the book about how it's both about theory and action. And I will say that as a practitioner of this process, I really find that to be true, that practicing the critical response process helps not only come up with a a really productive and collaborative way of talking about a particular piece of work in progress, but a whole way of reading and looking and listening and responding and making and being in the world. I mean, it's it's very deep. I feel very emotional about this.
2: (laughs) And I think, Rachel, that everything you're describing is part of the answer to the Uh, arts instructor or curator, presenter, person on authority who hears about this process and thinks it sounds good, but no, it's just not going to be feasible for me to do this because we're at that other end of the spectrum from the formal process we've just described into the internalization of some principles and values. And when those become the common coin for a group, then there's so many interactions you can have that aren't doing that four-step process, taking 40 minutes for everybody, but pull on the different steps at different points for what's useful in the moment to bring everybody's work forward. It is very much a practice, and one of our core um, critical response practitioners in our certification program put together this formulation recently where she asked folks uh, her name is Erica Moore. I want to credit her. She asked folks to name their own values. Mm. What are your values? And then having experienced critical response, what are the values of critical response? And often she found that there are, you know, she, we find in the discussion that there's an alignment there, that 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 people are into critical response because it enacts their own values. And to me, that's where the actual practice of the process happens. It's in this alignment of values we have for art making and learning. How can you do them? How can you live them? How can you base interactions and relationships around them in collaborative learning and art making environments?
0: You mentioned in the artist talk the other night that a huge part of who you are now as a dancer and a teacher and choreographer came from being, as you said, under the radar, or in these kind of what we call community settings. And one thing that I've noticed is that so many of the people who are open to the change, like the profound worldview change of the critical response process, also sort Mm -hmm. of came up through the community, which I would just say is everything other than the professionalized academic life. Um, So I I guess I I was hoping you might talk a little bit about the horizontal Mm -hmm. and the vertical. Mm -hmm. And because I I have also encountered these attacks that you are describing, primarily in teaching settings, uh, job interviews, job talks, stuff like that.
1: You know, I'd like to address a couple things about the educational system. What I'm right now, since I'm teaching at a university... Uh, what I find is people use critique not only to fix someone else's work but to teach they teach by critiquing Mm -hmm. and what I'm trying to understand is when do I want to just teach and when do I critique and how does that work so for example some this is Kind of a, a simplistic example. Let's say I'm looking at a student's dance composition, and they have somebody talking, and it's an important thing, but they've placed the person way at the back. And I could critique them, and you know, I, I you know, I could also ask them some questions and find out because, of course, they may have a reason for it, but they may also not ever have studied upstage and downstage from the point of view of a vocal thing. Mm. It's maybe new to them. So I have some options. I can use the critical response process and find out what... what. I could also pause, teach a little workshop on forward and backward, give people a chance to, you know, or teach the next class that way, and then see what they do with it. Mm -hmm. And then move in a little bit more. So sometimes I think we over-teach with critique when, in fact, we could just be teaching. That's one thing. Second thing is the idea of using critical response backwards. So when you, when you do experience attack, and including my students, and I try to work with them on this, somebody says something to you and you're you know, it bruises or you're not prepared or you're surprised or whatever, you can say to yourself, what's the neutral question you wish they had asked mm-hmm. instead of saying what they said, and you can respond as if they had asked you a question. Now, that does a couple of things. It gives you agency. It, it allows you to step out of the victim or the pain or the hurt, the triggering, all the stuff that goes on. It gets your mind working. Mm-hmm. It makes you listen. And it may help you figure out, because typically that stuff comes in with two, three, or four opinions. It's not usually singular. It's like, a oh, you did this, da, 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 da. And it makes you pull out the thing that's most interesting to you to work on. So back again to agency. And then I guess the third thing that I've been noticing is that I think part of the certain kind of rigor that academics have is often a kind of um, linear and or, I mean, not you wouldn't necessarily say beginning, middle, and end. But they have an approach that has, uh, this is what you learn first, this is what you learn second, this is what you learn third. And critical responses, the way it can work is that the critique comes in to those people so randomly. They, it just, they can't figure out when you get that many people giving you information about a single question, they are stumped. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little bit because they are stumped. They, they, they don't have that skill for multiplicity and sort of permeability that if you do critical response a lot, you get. So they are struggling literally with what to do. And that was one of those places, again, where I feel like if people are empowered to to understand the values, they might be able to consider a variation that would support their linear thinking with the openness that critical response has. I love what you were saying about the doula, and is there more to do besides saying, yes, keep going? Because, of (laughs) course, yes, keep going is a great thing to say. (laughs) Keep going. You guys keep going. But you do know stuff. Mm -hmm. You do. And people want to know what you know. And... Again, when you say to someone, I I have an opinion about what you just said, or I and I have a thought about how you could work on it, or I have an opinion about it, and those are three different things, letting that person know, and if giving them con- the possibility of consent just makes it go so much better. Yeah. I could talk about
0: this all day, every day, uh, especially with you, we only have two minutes left. Do you have anything that you really want to say or ask or, or share? That-
2: yeah, I, you know, here's a thought, and I, this is just fresh from my mind because I'm preparing for a workshop uh, with some arts educators in Florida later this week. You know, I emphasized at the beginning of our conversation, uh, work in progress uh, and how that's a core idea here. And we really embrace that idea. You ask people to think about think about a time when you've had a, had a um, powerful experience of feedback that left you motivated. I'm thinking right now about asking this question to people, and this might be a question your listeners would like to think about. What's happening in your life right now that you would call a work in progress? What's a work in progress? And that could be anything. If you're an art maker, you're a poet, you're working on a series, you're Uh, if you're uh, in any other art form, uh, the thing you're making artistically. But when I ask this question of people, it's everything from potty training a three-year-old to launching uh, a capital campaign, the big range, and cleaning cleaning out my garage. Work in progress. So just invite your listeners to think of something or several things in their lives that are works in progress. And as you think about that, think about these questions. If you shared this with someone... What kinds of things would you like to hear about it? Not just, of course, we want to hear that our work is good, but what would convince you that the person was really invested? What could you hear from them that would convince you that the person is invested in your success, in you doing your own best work? The next question is, what don't you know? What's unknown to you? Can you articulate that? Can you reflect a little bit on... Uh, doubts, excuses, hopes, apologies, and where does that reflection about this little work in progress or big work in progress you're thinking about lead you? And then what's the scope of what you're willing to hear about it? Often when we open the door to opinion it's like anything can come in, but it's okay for you to say I want to hear about this, this, and this. There's other stuff I don't want to hear about. So To think about something in your life that's a work in progress, reflect on a few questions like that, I think can offer some real insight into why this is such a functional, such a useful, such a generative and creative process.
0: Well, maybe this will be sort of the last question, Mm -hmm. unless there's something else that, that you can think of that I haven't asked. But is there anything that still stumps you or that you feel like, you know, I haven't quite figured out the language for this, or I haven't quite figured out why, you know, I want to take this piece further, or what do you
1: hope maybe happens when the book comes out? I'd love to, and Rachel, we didn't talk about the horizontal, but we could could, uh, reference it, or I could do it real, uh, uh, let me answer this, or, perfect, yeah, and then we could, if you still want it, we can, great, Um, I think that the challenges for critical response right now are also the challenges that we are all having, in understanding a more just and equitable universe and how we deal with the growth of each individual in a circle around some of those issues and who's who has to do the the learning the teaching the helping mm-hmm. so when critical response gets used used in in anti-racism work that's being called anti-racism work then there seems to be a way in which it is applied and also other tools that are brought to bear that partner it that make a lot of that explicit but when you're in a session where you have not identified that and although there are some people now who feel we should all be identifying that all the time mm-hmm. it should never know bit not be on people's mind when for example in step one someone makes a racist comment well then what happens as it did in a critical response that i was facilitating and i checked in with the artist i took a i said Tam, I uh, my out," and i turned to her i kept it between us as opposed to public which i often make the timeouts public and she said to me i don't want this hijacked mm. i need the critique mm-hmm. i want the feedback i do not want to turn this into a thing about uh helping that person get over their racism. Mm -hmm. I don't. Mm -hmm. So we didn't. Mm -hmm. I did go talk to this person afterwards and have a a conversation about it, using critical response. Mm -hmm. And we have some people, Isaac Gomez comes to mind, who's doing very specific work like that when racist comments come up within a session, how he uses critical response to address it. So I think this is an extremely vital area and I think critical response will find many places in it, and there it's not all by itself. It, it it needs support things. I'm really excited both about the book, but also about a short course we're going to be putting out soon that people can take online. That would it's kind of a, a fundamentals course, mm-hmm. and you know you sign up for it, and you um, you can it takes about six hours and I've been doing a lot of online work at ASU, so we've gotten, we're getting better and better at organizing those classes, and I'm excited to see if people pick this up. I heard, uh, I, you know, I just think people around the world are using it, and it's spread out, and you know, not, it's not all great. People do all kinds of, I might call it shoddy mm-hmm. you know, work, but, and a lot of confusion. I hope the new book straightens out some of the confusions, because there's some frequently misapplied <laughs> things that happen. But and this course, this course would help, and mm-hmm. I would be so happy if people just you know signed up and tried it and you know, as to your big question what's the future it's that's the question i'm having too mm-hmm. what and, and part of the question is for all of us with with a digital world, do we need geographic landmarks like does anything need to live anywhere, or can that really all just be you know online mm-hmm. uh, who's who's minding it uh is it continue to be minded by by myself and the people that organize around me, or our hope is that we find other institutions and other groups of people that might like to take this on? Is it a network? Is it a singular place? I think it needs tending there there is a way it's in the world enough it could just we could just let go and but it's kind of nice to tend it mm-hmm. and um that idea that you could be a community of practice, because, you know, John Borsell and I talk every week, and we're always going over a session and the problems we had or what came up or what should we do about this or that. And I I would love other people to have that, figure out how to do that. And for example, what you said, Rachel, what is the impact of being a doula? What is the relationship between that and what we're doing and how do they inform each other? And what does that mean if we think for a minute I I don't know. I I don't know a lot about being a doula, but I, I know that supporting something that's coming into being is just a magnificent thing that many, many people do. Maybe they don't think of themselves as doulas, but if there's something in that relationship that could be so powerful for people to reflect about. And that's what I would hope would happen in communities of practice. Oh, my God. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, do
0: you have a minute to that? Yeah, I'll just quickly just say about the horizontal, but also,
1: if people are interested, I wrote a book called Hiking the Horizontal, and it's a series of essays that address that particular philosophy. Honestly, it's really supported my work for many, many years, but I'm working on a new underlying philosophy that I'm also excited about that grows out of the horizontal. But the horizontal basically suggests, and it came, you know, at the beginning of the dance section, it has been 40 years in the making, I suppose now you would think of it as non-binary. It might be a support system for the non-binary. But basically, if you place your hands in a vertical, one over the other, and you say on the, the top hand is, say, my work in a concert hall, and the bottom hand, you say, is my work in the community, you could say, the top, you know, in a vertical world, what's on top is best. That's where the real art is or something like that. But if you fl- a lot of people just flip their hands when they want to fix that, and then they say, no, 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 the community thing is best, and then the art world's down at the bottom. And I just personally I found that impoverished that there were always things from both worlds i wanted so i just f- put my hand sideways which i like to joke is easy to do with my hands <laughs> you know it's not so easy in the world mm-hmm. i mean we've all been trained in vertical authoritarian uh systems and we we, we look for these, these these things on the horizontal and it turns out if you're in the horizontal then there are all kinds of skills you need that are different from what you have in a vertical which include naming where you are it includes multiple words for the same thing. It includes permeable borders. Uh, it includes um, asking yourself what is go- at the other end, what's at the other side of that horizon that may- is not your proclivity, but maybe something that you are interested in or you might want to look at. It also means if you make the horizontal a circle, things are not so far apart from each other. That's that's the simplest way to describe it. But for me, it's it's been a helpful way to actually embrace a bigger world and not get wow i'm just waiting for an airplane that's the first airplane i've heard here oh it's a helicopter it's probably a traffic helicopter and if you're listening the clouds are super i mean that's amazing so it's quite beautiful um (laughs) oh yeah there's a lot more to be said but um could find the book, and I think it's... Oh, by the way, it's on Audible. So, oh, excellent. Yeah, so you can listen. I have some friends who've been listening on their commute, so it's just kind of fun. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just grateful, Rachel, to you and uh, to bringing me the information you've been bringing me about people using Critical Response, and uh, to all your listeners, I mean, I, I hope you pick it up and uh, be in touch, and, and uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. Great. So
0: grateful. Thank you. John, this is been a true delight and honor and I I'm you are now a turning point in my life in terms of thinking about my teaching, my art making. This book is an incredible resource and I'm so grateful to you for the time that you've spent talking to me and making this book and teaching this process and without starting to cry, I will I will tell you, it is giving me hope at a time when very little else makes me feel hopeful. And it's really a big deal, and I'm really grateful. That's really gratifying to hear, Rachel. Uh, It's a
2: thrill to talk to someone who has has that real internalized knowledge of doing the process, using the process, and teaching and learning.
0: You've been listening to episode 104 of Commonplace with Liz Lerman and John Borstel. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by me, Valentine Conady, Christine LaRusso, and Langa Chinyoka. Many thanks to Liz Lerman, John Borstel, Aaron Donahue, Wesleyan University Press, Bethany Arts Community, Erica Meitner, Jason Schneiderman, and Helena Betya Rubinstein. The music you're listening to was written and performed by Judah Darwin-Zucker Gorin. You can find more of his music on Spotify. Many, many thanks to all Commonplace patrons. You make Commonplace possible. And to you, listener, thank you for listening.